I'm Haley. And I'm Katie. And you're listening to The Reference Desk, a podcast where two librarians take you down the rabbit hole of the topics that have bewitched us. So adjust the chain on your reading glasses, button up your favorite cardigan, and follow us punk-ass book jackies through the stacks to The Reference Desk. Hello! Hello. How are you? I am good. How are you doing? Okay. Not bad. Okay. <laughs> Just excellent. Well, we had snow here Monday, which kind of closed everything down because we don't get snow that often. We got like, I think about seven inches. That's a lot. It's a decent amount. And they're calling for more tomorrow. And I'm supposed to work until eight in the in the evening. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. That sounds fun. Mm-hmm. But um, I was trying to have like as normal a week as possible because Finn starts a new daycare next week. So it's like trying to be super structured and like normal routine. And then it all went to hell. But yeah, that's what happens. <laughs> yeah. But he got to build a snowman and he was so stoked about <sighs> the snowman. So cute. It's like the first thing he, when he saw the snow, he's like, snowman? Where's the snowman? <laughs> you have to go make it. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't just magically appear. Oh, that would be amazing and super scary if they did. Yeah, it would be so scary. It just like came up through the snow. <laughs> have you gotten any more snow? Um, It was snowing today. It might still be snowing now. Um, I think we're supposed to get more overnight. So, um, yeah, we'll see. Uh, it's weird where our house is because we're like, we're right across from the water and there's nothing like blocking the wind from the front of our house. So all uh the snow just like blows. If you look like out front, there's not really much snow, but then like you go out our back door and you're like, Oh, (laughs) wait, that's (laughs) That's That's I just like picture like once fall hits it's just constant snow that's in my mind (laughs) (laughs) you're just covered in snow at all times um I feel like growing up it was like that (laughs) yeah not anymore you know thanks to climate change yes yeah that's what was so strange about Monday though is that on Sunday the day before it was 60 degrees outside (laughs) So we're like, it's not going to stick. Come on. Yeah. Everyone's freaking out. And no, seven inches stuck. I don't I don't know how. Some weird weather phenomena. But. It got cold fast, apparently. <laughs> real, real quick. Yeah. And it's been in the 20s ever since. But Ooh. we're still considered the South. That's cold for us. <laughs> that is cold. Yeah. There's a big part. Charlottesville um, has been like most of Charlottesville has been out of power since Monday. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there's like these, all these poor people and it's so cold and they don't have any power. Yeah. That's rough. (sighs) Yeah. 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 That happened. Um, last winter we had gone somewhere. I'm sure to my parents, we didn't go anywhere else for like the past two years, but, uh, we got home and our heat was out and, Thankfully, we had a fireplace in that house. So we were able to heat like at least half of our house with the fireplace. Right. Uh, here we don't. So I'm like, mm, I don't know what we would do. 
Yeah, we, I mean, technically we have a gas fireplace, but I've never used it and I'm terrified of it. So, <laughs> uh, and you don't really want your first time using it to be like in an emergency. Definitely not. No. What have you been up to? Well, uh, I finally finished Go Tell the Bees <gasps> that I'm Gone. Did you love it? So I loved it. <laughs> but okay. I also felt like the second half of the book moved really fast. Like, really? She okay. just kind of skipped over like big chunks of time. And I did not like that because she's usually like so meticulous and detailed. Uh, so that really kind of threw me off. I'm hoping that the plan is that in the next book, maybe she's like going to go back and fill in those chunks of time. Okay. Like that's kind of the only thing, the only real reason I can think of that I would be happy with. Otherwise it just means that she's like getting close to the end and is trying to like move the plot along faster. Right. Uh, so yeah that's Um, no good i know the end had like some pretty huge reveals and there were some that were like the seeds had been planted in earlier books so now even though i just finished like rereading for like a year i'm like no i want to go back and see if i could like piece it together (laughs) oh my goodness yeah but i'm forcing myself not to yet (laughs) yeah Um, so I got on the Kindle store just to like, kind of see what I have missed for the past, however long I've been (laughs) reading this. And uh, one of my favorite, like just very light romancy authors is Jenny Colgan. And she had like three or four books come out in the time that I've been rereading Outlander. Yeah. She puts them out. (laughs) Yeah, she does. Uh, So I started one of those. It's called uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Dumped. And (laughs) uh, it's about a woman who just got engaged, but she's not feeling like some of the things that she thinks she should be feeling about her wedding. So she decides to pull like a Michael Scott and go back through her past relationships. (laughs) (laughs) What did Jane call that? Oh, gosh, I forget. She called it something. She did. She was very excited about it, too. She's like, oh, so mm-hmm. we're doing a... To see if I can Google and find it, because <laughs> otherwise it's <laughs> it's like an unresolved melody, and it just won't. Yes, right. and Andy Bernard will freak out. That's right. Um, post-mor- Does she call it a postmortem? Maybe. That could be ridiculous. <laughs> This really is, but I mean, I, I completely understand. Like, I'm going to... Yes! She calls it a postmortem. Call- okay, okay. <laughs> All right, good job. Okay. So, anyways, that's what I've been reading. Uh, and then I I listened to the entire um, podcast series, Sweet Bobby, over the past mm-hmm. couple days. Um, it's by Tortoise Media. It's hosted by Alexi Mostras. And it's a it's a really short six episode series that tells the story of this woman named Kirat who was catfished by someone for over a decade. Oh, yeah! Yikes! It's just the most 
unbelievable twisty turny story uh and it's handled really beautifully like there's no victim blaming there's a lot of like deep compassion and a search to try to figure out what all the parties involved were going through um it was just so good so highly recommend if you want a little short series awesome what about you have you been consuming anything so I'm still reading those same two books. So um, book lovers and um, when you get the chance, we're rewatching The Office. And then we have rewatched Encanto probably 15 times. <laughs> Finn is now officially like in love with Encanto. We have to listen to it in the car now because you, you know, you gave us that suggestion. I did it. And now we, every time we're in the car, we have to listen to it. So and the and the first song is you know the the family madrigal mm-hmm. so like the very first words are drawers floors doors so he calls the movie doors oh <laughs> he gives doors again mama doors again oh so cute <laughs> okay but I wake up singing those songs mm-hmm. I sing them at work like they are just like stuck in my head. Mm-hmm. Lin-Manuel, man, I mean, he can write some damn songs. Yeah. So good. <laughs> I I like it more and more, like, each time I watch it or listen to it. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's so good. I cry at the final scene every time. hmm Oh, yeah. 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 Beautiful. We have seven library locations, and um, part of my job is to to visit all of them and do you services for all of them. So I have some road trips coming up because they're all about thirty mile or thirty minutes apart. Uh, so hopefully, I'll be able to get my book done <laughs> by next week and have something else to read. I might just listen to the Encanto soundtrack the whole time, probably. Yeah, yeah, can't blame you. We've been putting it on pretty much every time we get in the car, too. And then when it's over, I'm like, I'm not done. So, <laughs> yeah. so then I'll go and put on Hamilton. Yes! Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. So good. Everyone go watch it. Even if you don't have kids, watch it. <laughs> Hopefully he gets his um, his Oscar for yeah. it. So he can complete his EGOT. Oh... Is he, that's the only one he needs? I think so. Excellent. Yeah. Well, uh, I loved your topic of Amelia Earhart last week. It was so good. It was a, such a nice break from horrible white men. <laughs> it was. I felt that researching, too. I was like, oh, she's wonderful. This is nice. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, obviously still a real big bummer that she disappears in the end. (laughs) I mean, yeah. Uh, I know there's a lot of people who like that theory that she really ended up like living out her life on some tropical island somewhere. So I I understand the most likely scenario is that her plane, you know, crashed into the ocean. (laughs) Um, But it made me really want to find a story about a woman who did survive. Yay! Uh, and since I haven't done a survival story since uh, Jose Salvador Alvarenga back in season one, I felt like it was time 
But when I started doing looking, doing some looking for stories about female survivors, I found that there's just not that many compared to stories about men, which I mean, of course, like everything else, it's just, you know, right. <laughs> it's underreported. Um, sure. Most of the ones I did find were about women who had escaped from men <laughs> who had you know, <laughs> kidnapped them or were trying to murder them. So I did ultimately end up finding one that had all the things that I wanted. So that's why this week I am bewitched with the survival story of Ada Blackjack. Ooh, I love her name. Right? Isn't it so good? Yes. I don't know who she is, though. But you can just tell she's going to be amazing. Ada Blackjack. Yes. So Ada Blackjack was born Ada Delatuck in 1898 in Spruce Creek, Alaska. And Spruce Creek was a very remote settlement north of the Arctic Circle that is now completely depopulated. But at the time, there was a small number of Inuit families living there. Uh, it's about eight miles from the town of Solomon, and the closest city would be Nome. Uh, so it's it's up there. <laughs> now I'm just thinking about our very ill-advised idea to go move to Alaska. Oh my gosh. I don't know what you're talking about. That was genius. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling maybe this is going to convince me further that it's a good thing we didn't go there. <laughs> uh I mean, she doesn't she, she doesn't go through all what she's about to go through in Alaska. Okay, okay. <laughs> so the closest like major city would have been Nome, uh, which had just been built after the 1896 gold rush. Okay. Um, before the gold rush, Alaska's population was largely indigenous people with just a handful of white settlers most of whom were only there part of the year working in the cannery industry. In fact, for some ridiculous reason, just like trying to figure out the term postmortem, I wasted a <laughs> bunch of time looking at uh, Alaska census reports. Uh, so <laughs> the 1890 census showed that only about 2,000 permanent year-round residents there were non-Indigenous people. Wow. And then the gold rush happened, and by 1900, so just 10 years later, the census showed that there were over 30,000 white settlers now in Alaska. That's huge. It's insane. So for the first time ever, the indigenous people were made the minority. So the town of Solomon had seven saloons, a post office, a phone and mail service, and daily boat service to Nome. So it was, it was a happening place for the time. Oh, yeah. Seven saloons. <laughs> <laughs> of course, there's more saloons than literally anything else. Anything else. Ada was in Anupiat. Uh, the Anupiats are a group of Alaska natives that have inhabited northern Alaska, Canada, and Greenland. They are more commonly grouped in as Inuits, um, but the term Anupiat reflects the specific region and language spoken in northern Alaska. So the Anupiat people are hunter-gatherers who relied and continue to rely on subsistence uh, hunting and fishing. 
They harvest walrus, seal, whale, polar bears, caribou, and fish. They value the use of the entire animal, demonstrated through the utilization of hides turned into clothing, fur used for warmth, tusks used in artwork, bones turned into needles, and threads crafted from sinew. The Anupiat people traditionally lived in sod houses, usually made of stone with a driftwood or whalebone frame, which was covered with moss or sod. Anupiat values include respect for elders, hard work, hunter success, family roles, humor, respect for nature, uh, knowledge of your family tree, respect for others, sharing, love of children, cooperation, avoiding conflict, responsibility to your tribe, humility, and spirituality. So when I first started reading about this, I'm thinking like, well, Ada Blackjack is going to be super well-suited for survival. Uh, But she had essentially been raised as what they referred to as a city Anupiat. So she had no experience of tribal living. She had never been required to hunt, trap, or build shelters. Uh, Her father died when she was eight years old after eating some old meat. He fell ill while Ada's mother was away. So Ada and one of her younger sisters bundled him up and tied him to a sled and tried to drive him to Nome, which was 30 miles east of where they lived. Oh my gosh! Uh, Along the way, they realized that he was already dead, so they had to turn back and take his corpse home. Oh my goodness! Shortly after her father's death, her mother decided that she was not able to care for her and her sisters, so she sent them to a Methodist mission school in Nome, where Ada was raised by missionaries who taught her to read and write English at a third grade level, mathematics, composition, handwriting, how to cook white people food, as they called it, (laughs) how to wash, iron, clean, and sew, how to sing hymns, bathe, comb her hair, brush her teeth, avoid tobacco and alcohol, handle money, honor the American flag, and of course, read the Bible. Of course. But they taught none of her cultural traditions or any skills that a Inupit woman would typically learn growing up with her people. So after Ada finished her education, she took jobs uh, working as a housekeeper and seamstress in Nome, making clothing for the miners there. Ada stood less than five feet tall. <laughs> she was tiny. She was described as poker-faced, pretty, and unassuming. She had delicate features and long, straight, blue-black hair. Her voice was low and soft, and she had a habit of sitting as still as a statue with her head cocked to one side as she listened to you talk. That might be a little creepy. A little bit. (laughs) (laughs) She was shy and private, but charming to those who knew her, lighthearted and cheerful around her closest friends. She liked nice clothes and hats. And she dressed very smartly with a particular fondness for dark blue suits, which she often purchased in the children's section of stores. She's Angela! She is. If there had been American Girl doll stores, that's where she would have been shopping. (laughs) While her childhood was cut cruelly short, she remembered the stories her grandmother and other Inupiat storytellers had told her. She knew how to read the stars in the sky through their stories and that the polar bear, the greatest mythical creature of her people, was to be feared above all, even death. 
I mean, pretty smart. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking scary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they had a legend about a Anupiat polar bear named Nanook, who was kind of a polar bear man hybrid who walked upright, lived in an igloo, and shed his skin in private. Oh, real scary. Yeah. I feel like Jan Brett might have a book about that. (laughs) I could see that. Right? (laughs) Yeah. At age 16, Ada married a notorious local dog musher and hunter named Jack Blackjack. Yes! That was his real name. (gasps) Ada and Jack Blackjack. I love it. (laughs) Unfortunately, despite his cool name, he was a terrible husband. Damn it, Jack. I know. Uh, He beat and starved Ada. She had three children with him, but two of them died in infancy. Uh, Because in Inuit tradition, men and women just chose to marry each other with no legal ceremony, there was nothing to prevent Black Jack from ultimately leaving Ada and her small son deserted on the Seaward Peninsula where they were living. Oh my gosh! So, with nowhere else to go, Ada returned to her mother in Nome with her five-year-old son, Bennett. The pair had walked the entire distance of the Seaward Peninsula to return to Nome. Oh my god. Uh, It turns out that being abandoned in the wilderness and left to walk for days on end hadn't been great for her son's health. No. Uh, The boy ended up developing tuberculosis and was extremely fragile. He required around-the-clock care, and Ada was struggling to find work again, sewing and cleaning houses. So with no other choice, she took Bennett to an orphanage in Nome, where they promised to provide him with the medical care he he required. Um, Then Ada threw herself into finding work and saving as much money as possible so she could get Bennett back from the orphanage and care for him herself. So I'm going to leave Ada here for just a moment and introduce you to someone else. Uh, His name is Wilhelmer Stephenson. And Stephenson was born in Canada to Icelandic parents in 1879. He studied anthropology at Harvard and began undertaking a series of expeditions in Iceland, the Central Arctic, and Canada. He organized and directed the Canadian Arctic Expedition of 1913, which was to explore the regions of the Periarchipelago. I never know how to say this word. Archipelago. 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 Fancy feast. (laughs) Break me off a piece of that fancy feast. Nailed it. The Perry Archipelago for the Canadian government. So he had three ships for this voyage, the Carluk, the Mary Sachs, and the Alaska. And uh, pretty quickly into the expedition, the Carluk became marooned in ice. And Stephenson, along with five other members, decided to leave the ship to go hunting and come back with fresh meat for everyone on board. But while they were away, the ship was carried off by moving ice with 25 people on board. Oh my god! (laughs) The Carluk drifted westward with the ice before eventually being crushed and sinking on January 11th, 1914. So for 
of the people on board who survived made their way to Harold Island, but died there. Four others, including a man named Alistair McKay, who had already fucking survived the Shackleton expedition. No! (laughs) Why would you go near ice again? Why? (laughs) I have no idea. He's not the only one we'll encounter who decided to go back to this. It's like those people that kept getting on boats after the Titanic yes. and, and then the Lusitania and the Brit- Like, why? Stop it. Just stop. stop it. Just stay home. Oh, so this man, uh, he tried reaching a remote island named Wrangell Island, but he perished along with the three others. Uh, the remaining group reached Wrangell Island, but three died there. So the captain of the Carlook took his Inuk hunter and guide with him across the sea ice to Siberia to find help. Uh, And the few remaining survivors on Wrangell Island ended up being picked up after over six months there. One of them was a man named Fred Moore. uh, And when he returned to Ohio, he found himself feeling kind of restless like so many of these dumb men do. He tried everything he could think of to, like, shake this restless feeling. He joined the army during World War I. Uh, he wrote and spoke about his experience on the Carlook, including the intense anger he and the other men had felt towards Stephenson about abandoning them because there was a lot of speculation afterwards that Stephenson knew when he left, that the ship would float away. Uh, so he Ooh. was basically abandoning them so he could carry on with the expedition. Yikes. There's obviously no evidence to prove that Stephenson knew, but still not a great thing to have happen when you're leading an expedition. Uh, so despite this terrible failure, Stephenson planned another expedition in 1921 to return to Wrangell Island. He wanted to colonize it and use it as a future airbase, a radio station, and a meteorological station. (laughs) He also saw the possibilities of profitable walrus hunting and fur trapping and a place for reindeer breeding. Reindeer breeding? Yeah, apparently that's a thing. Like for meat or like... uh, I think, I mean, they're not breeding them for Santa. (laughs) So I Why not? He needs extras. <laughs> I can only assume it was for meat and maybe like their fur. Oh, yeah, I guess. He initially wanted to claim it for the Canadian government, but the Canadian government had watched how badly he had fucked up the first time and they were like, no thanks, we're good. <laughs> So then he was like, fine, forget Canada. I'm going to claim it for Britain. They'll take anything. (laughs) I mean. Stephenson had this belief that the Arctic was a hospitable, habitable place for anyone with good sense. Okay. He said, quote, given a healthy body and a cheerful disposition, a family can now live at the North Pole as comfortably as it can in Hawaii. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's going to take a lot more than a cheerful disposition. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. As someone who has moved from Florida to Michigan, which is nowhere near being as brutal as the Arctic, 
I can confidently say that just daily life is harder. Yes. Yeah. So I can only imagine what it would be like in the Arctic. Getting a child ready to go outside in the cold is a fucking nightmare. Worst. I literally said that to Dave the other day as I was bundling Rory up to go outside. I was like, this was one of the reasons I didn't want to move back to Michigan. Uh, He also said, quote, I think anyone with good eyesight and a rifle can live anywhere in the polar regions indefinitely. (laughs) Sure, 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 sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He coined it the friendly Arctic in an attempt to persuade people that it was this place that was, you know, as great as Hawaii. Oy. Uh, so along for the ride on this new expedition back to Wrangell Island was none other than Fred Moore. Moore had somehow eventually forgotten the sheer anger and horrors associated with the original Wrangell Island fiasco. And signed back on with the man who had deserted him in the first place. He had actually been working with Stephenson for a while, warming up the audiences for his speaking engagements on the Chautauqua circuit, which was, I guess, this popular adult education lecture tour that was happening in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, So Stephenson told Moore his plans for another expedition to Wrangell Island, and the survivor was, for some fucking reason, all in on it. Yikes. So in addition to 28-year-old Moore, Stephenson recruited three more men to colonize Wrangell Island. So we had 27-year-old American Errol Lorne Knight, who had met Stephenson six years earlier after spotting him on the shore of Cape Kellett, Alaska, from a ship that Knight was on. Okay. Uh, so after abandoning the Kalak, Stephenson had basically just continued on into the wilderness and had been surviving on his own in the Arctic for over two years. Oh my god. Pretty much every peace out. Yeah. Pretty much everyone at that point had assumed he was dead. <laughs> but Knight spotted him and was so fascinated with him that he begged Stephenson to teach him how to survive in the Arctic. So for the next four years, Knight had joined Stephenson on an expedition that took them two hundred miles north of Alaska's northern coast. And then they set themselves adrift on an ice floe. He also recruited 19-year-old Milton Harvey Robert Gall, who was also an American who had been working running the projector for Stephenson on his Chautauqua tour. Uh, Knight and Moore both had taken an immediate liking to the Texan and told him that if they ever went back up north again, they wanted to bring him along. It took me until just now to realize that Milton Harvey is not the same as Milton Hershey. So <laughs> it's like the Hershey guy went. No, there was n- there was no chocolate. Damn it! <laughs> uh, and then their third member was a twenty-year-old from the University of Toronto named Alan Rudyard Crawford. Uh, and Stephenson recruited him with a letter he had written to the president of the University of Toronto. And I'll go ahead and read it just because it 
gives just a hilarious overview of what he was thinking. Okay, so confidential. Dear Sir Robert, I am planning a three-year polar expedition. This year, I want to send north to a point within the Arctic Circle, an advance party consisting of a topographer, a botanist, a zoologist, a geologist, and one or two other men. My experience has been that generally, the younger the man, the more readily he adapts himself to northern conditions. For that reason, I should prefer to get men just out of college. The chief qualification is temperamental. There should be no tendency to imagine that you are a hero or that it constitutes remarkable hardships to be away from movies and operas for a year or two. <laughs> Burn, I guess. I don't- <laughs> so bizarre. Moderately good health is desirable. The man should be especially a good walker. His circulation should be... <laughs> should be at least so good that there is no marked tendency to numbness of hands or feet. Mm, he's such a good walker. So good at walking. So good. He's just like the best walker. To be fair, that's like the only form of physical activity that I'm any decent <laughs> at. So <laughs> I, I get it. The eyesight should be above the average. Because remember, if you have a rifle and decent eyesight, you can survive. (laughs) Definitely. Yes. Yeah. And so this is something that the president of the college should know. The eyesight (laughs) of his students. Yes. Got it. Okay. No man is useful in midwinter work in the far north who is not able to get along without glasses. (laughs) Why? I don't know. What is wrong with glasses? Maybe they like freeze or like fog up i don't know um the the wages would be nominal eighteen hundred dollars a year the man should at the very least have specialized as an undergraduate in botany zoology or geology preferably he should have had at least a year's postgraduate work this letter is confidential in so far that I should not like to get any mention of the undertaking into the public press. Yours sincerely, V. Stephenson. Crawford had not graduated yet. He was only 20 years old, but he was super interested. Um, and his eyesight was good and he was a good walker. So. <laughs> super good walking. Uh, so, um, so Crawford was in. Stephenson met with Crawford and told him that he himself wasn't actually going to wrangle. Uh, So Crawford was going to be in charge of the expedition. 20 years old. Never Mm -hmm. been in the Arctic. Sounds smart. Yes. But because Crawford was Canadian, he was also a British subject and could therefore claim the island for Britain. Got it. So the plan was that these four men would travel first to Nome, where they would purchase dogs and hire Inuit guides and then continue on to Wrangell. Stephenson, meanwhile, would remain behind, footing the bill for the expedition and campaigning their cause to the government. 
He would then join them on the island in a year's time, and regardless of if he could come personally or not, a supply ship would be sent with a relief party aboard to either join the men if they wanted to stay or take anyone back who wanted to go home. Okay. They were all sworn to secrecy about the expedition, told it was supported by the British government, and not even allowed to tell their families exactly where they were going. Oh my gosh. That's terrifying. Yeah. So the four men set out from Seattle to Nome along with a kitten named Victoria. (laughs) Because I guess it was good luck to have a cat on board your ship. Yeah. Uh, Once in Nome, they hired a ship and a captain, a sled, and a team of seven dogs. And they also began looking for Inuits. So this is where our dear friend Ada comes back into the story. So Ada was walking home from a house cleaning job one night when the chief of police pulled her aside and told her that she should consider joining the men in town who were planning an Arctic expedition. They were looking for a seamstress and for someone who could speak English. They promised good pay and Ada desperately needed that. The chief assured Ada that the expedition was hiring dozens of local Inuit people and even some entire families were planning on moving to the island. So she would go with them to help sew. And if she went, she would make $50 a month, which was more money than she had seen in her entire life. Wow. And she knew that if she went and could make that money and save it, she would be able to get Bennett out of the orphanage. But she was terrified. Uh, She had, like, never been this far from home. She was so scared of polar bears because of her, you know, tribe's stories. Yeah. So she decided to help her make the decision she should go see a shaman. And the shaman told Ada that she would sail to the island, but that she would find only danger and death there. Uh-oh. He also warned her to be watchful of knives and fire. So, you know, not a great fortune to be told. <laughs> no, definitely not. But in the end, her hopes of being able to be reunited with her son led her to agree to join. On the day of their departure, Ada arrived to board the ship, the Silver Wave, and she discovered that she was the only Inuit who had shown up. Oh, they lied. The other families had decided it was too risky and chose to back out. Uh, yeah. So Ada was super scared, very suspicious, uh, and the men weren't happy either. They had counted on having dozens of Native people to help, not just one small woman. They told Ada they thought that they could hire more Native people in Siberia before they sailed on to the island. Uh, So Ada was very wary, but ultimately decided to keep her promise and join the expedition. Once they reached Siberia, they were laughed at by the Russians who who told them that their destination definitely belonged to Russia... (laughs) and they didn't find anyone there who was willing to join them wow so the four men and ada continued on to wrangle and on september 16th 1921 crawford raised the british flag on the island as ada watched the silver wave return to nome 
I just find that so fascinating. You just put a flag on something. It's like, ta-da, we own it now. Yep. And wh- and, and why? Like, this, yeah. this island is, I mean, it's, there's nothing there. <laughs> so Wrangell Island is about 80 miles long with a width ranging between 20 and 40 miles. It has rivers, streams, and lagoons, but is mostly just covered by jagged slate rocks. Oh, fun. It's home to two mountain ranges. Uh, The north of the island flattens into tundra, which covers about half the island. And the southern half of the island, where Crawford's crew had landed, is lined with black gravel beaches that drop steeply into the water. Ooh, that sounds great. Uh, the men immediately got to work setting up camp. They pitched three tents on a small sand spit, one for living quarters and two for supplies. Uh, they then used driftwood to frame out a house against a steep hill, planning to cover the remaining sides with snow blocks once winter arrived. They pitched two tents sewn together inside of the house. The men slept in one half and Ada in the kitchen occupied the other. Uh, When the crew opened their boxes of supplies, they were not thrilled. Some of the items they had ordered in Seattle hadn't made it to the island. Uh, The box of potatoes were all rotten. The box of prunes was full of maggots. Uh. And even the dogs that they had purchased were in pretty terrible condition. Oh, no. But the men were still super excited for their adventure And Ada was basically like, I'm here. I'm going to make some money. Let's do this. I'm here now. I'm in this. Yeah. Uh, Ada proved to be very helpful to the men. She cooked and sewed. She was a very hard worker. And they all got along really well. Uh, The men spent most of their days exploring the island and attempting to hunt. But none of them had much experience hunting. (laughs) <laughs> and they had a lot of failed attempts. You mean there's more to it than just uh, eyesight? <laughs> Apparently you need like some practice. Damn it. Okay. They did eventually uh, kill a polar bear. Ada herself was horrified to discover that the island was full of polar bears. Oh no. <laughs> when she stood outside... You could, she could look in literally any direction and probably see a polar bear. Yikes. Yeah, so kind of her worst nightmare. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but the first, you know, few weeks weren't bad. Uh, the snow started on September 20th and the temperature dropped. And along with the snow and the drop in temperature, Ada's spirits just really fell to rock bottom. Uh, she began sobbing near, nearly constantly and was terribly homesick. The men treated her kindly and gently, which with each of them recording in their journals that they were concerned about her and working hard to take good care of her. Mm-hmm. Well, that's nice. I know. Uh, but her behavior just kept getting stranger Uh, She started just kind of like setting her work aside and spending hours staring off into nothingness. Uh Uh-oh. She also had become hopelessly infatuated with Crawford, and she decided that they should marry after they returned home, Mm. which was kind of uncomfortable for everyone. Yeah. 
things just kept getting worse. Uh, She moved into her her own snow house to be alone. She refused to eat or talk with the men except for Crawford. She seemed to be afraid that they were planning to kill her. And she watched them like a hawk anytime they worked with their knives because she had been warned by the shaman. Uh, She eventually was doing no work at this point. Uh, The men were having to clean and stretch their own bearskins. They were making all of their own supplies uh, and they were preparing to learn how to sew their own clothes for the winter because Ada just wasn't doing anything. They tried different methods with her. Uh, They tried punishing her. They tried denying her supper. They tried reading the Bible with her and pointing out stories uh, that said that everyone should work faithfully and be kind to others. Sometimes she would perk up for a few days, but she remained unpredictable and difficult. She attempted to run away several times, and she was just terrified of the men. Mm. So... The men decided that they would set up two camps about 15 miles apart and take turns rotating between them with two men at each camp at a time. Uh, They figured that it would give them a break from each other uh, and a change of scenery while also allowing them to keep Crawford and Ada separate because she was growing like very inappropriate with her attempts to attract him. Okay. At this point, the men were no longer gentle and caring. They forced her to walk between the camps alone at night. They tied her to the flagpole for hours at a time. And uh, they threatened to whip her. From the men's perspective, she was a burden on this expedition because she was eating their food and using their supplies while making their work increasingly difficult. She kept running away, and the men had to track her through the snow and cold and drag her back to camp. So not only were they having to do all the things that she had been hired to do, but they were also forced to watch her day and night because they knew that if anything happened to the one woman among four men, they would never be able to recover from it. Right. I feel for their frustration. Yeah, yeah, but something, something's going on with with her. Uh, they had no way of knowing that Ada was not doing any of these things on purpose. She was homesick, terrified. Uh, she knew that the men wished she wasn't there. And she was deeply in love with Crawford and kind of suffering from a broken heart because she knew he didn't love her back. But he was the only man out of the four that she trusted, and she was also very confused as to why she was forced to be separated from him. Unlike the men, Ada had come on this voyage with no desire to survive in the wild. She was hired for a job, and she was told she would live alongside other Inuit families. Yeah. She knew she couldn't survive here without the men, but she was also terrified of them. Um, She was worried she would never see her son again. And she was suffering from a condition that was called, um, at the time, Arctic hysteria. Uh, I don't know if it's still called that. 
but it's basically a condition that develops in people who are trapped in a cold place during uh, times of endless day or worse, endless night. Yeah. And the polar night had begun on November 21st and Ada had been in darkness for 61 days. Yikes. Oh my gosh. Victims of Arctic hysteria become easily frightened. They often run away in search of relief and sometimes end up completing suicide. Mm -hmm. The victims become sluggish and sedentary, and there is a marked inclination toward sexual inappropriateness. Wow. That's super interesting. I know. Our brains are weird. I know. (laughs) They're so weird. So while all this was happening on Wrangell Island, uh, back in London, the British government had learned that Stephenson had hoisted the British flag on Wrangell Island. (laughs) By the way. Yep. Crawford had been seen by the captain of the boat that dropped them off as he was, like, leaving the island. And it turns out that Britain had nothing to do with the expedition. (laughs) (laughs) They had told Stevenson directly that they had no interest. Uh, They knew that it was politically risky, given that the Russians thought that Wrangell Island was theirs. Yeah. Um, Stephenson had done it anyways, hoping that they would just, like, be cool with it in the end. (laughs) That's, like, not a situation where you, like... What is it? Asks for forgiveness, not permission. Now's not the time. Right. (laughs) The good news was that as the winter continued, Ada grew accustomed to her surroundings and her case of Arctic hysteria lifted. So she ended up returning to work. Uh, It was like overnight the men wrote that she just immediately went back to normal. Uh, She became just as diligent and hardworking and easy to be around as she had been when they had first met her. They all moved back in together. They joked about her previous personality. By the time the snow melted in May, they were all in good spirits and discussing what they would do when the ship reached them. The relief crew was due to arrive in June or July and would bring fresh supplies, new faces, and the opportunity to go home if they wanted. Mm. Mm-hmm. Most of the supplies that they had come with had run out and they were sharing their meager food supplies with the with the dogs, a handful of which who were still alive. Aww. So while the time on the island hadn't been like the worst possible, it also hadn't been great. Yeah. But back in New York, Stephenson was waiting on money that would never arrive because he had no government support and no borrowing power. The families of the men on Wrangell Island were keeping up a steady stream of pressure on him for information about their sons and husbands. Mm -hmm. And with no other options, Stephenson turned his pleas for help into humanitarian ones, arguing that it's possible the men could be sick or injured. Mm-hmm. He eventually obtained some funding from his friend Orville Wright, uh, and the Canadian government also eventually chipped in $3,000. But by the time he had found a ship and a captain willing to accept the uh, excursion, it was nearly autumn again. Oh, no, that's too long. It is. So the schooner Teddy Bear 
departed for Wrangell on August 23rd, 1922. On the island, the men in Ada were getting a little desperate. It had begun snowing again in mid-August, and they were starting to have some trouble finding game. And they saw that the ice was forming offshore and would make a ship arriving there difficult. Mm-hmm. But they were still pretty sure that it would happen, and on August 28th, they took their only group photograph together, thinking that it would be their last chance before Ada went home on the relief ship. Wow. But the teddy bear was unable to make its way through the ice surrounding the island and returned to Nome no. at the end of September without the men or Ada. Yikes. The men's families were pissed. Absolutely. And Stephenson attempted to reassure them. He wrote to Crawford's family, quote, There is no more need to worry about them than if they were in some European city or an ordinary place and were merely not in the habit of communicating with you. In other words, the only worries you need have for Alan are the same which he may reasonably have about you, and his chances of being safe and well next fall is the same as your own. Oh, my God. Not the same, dude. Nope, nope. On Wrangell, the men in Ada now knew that no ship was coming. The ice was thick and stretched for as far as they could see, and they knew that the season for safe passage had long since ended. Mm. So they set out to survive another winter. They reorganized and rationed supplies. They made plans to move camp, having exhausted all the nearby firewood. Um, They also started tossing around the possibility of crossing the ice to Nome in the spring. Instead of waiting for a ship, Knight needed some help. He was starting to have a chronic stiffness in his back and an aching in his hip. Uh And just feeling generally weak and lethargic. Does he have Lyme disease? No. He has scurvy. Oh, no! Yeah. He recognized the signs right away because he had suffered from scurvy before during his first expedition with Stephenson. Mm -hmm. But he kept the diagnosis to himself, not wanting to worry the others. Which means that the other men were mostly just annoyed with him because he was not able to help in spending time in bed. Yeah. But Ada noticed that something was going on and uh, she was getting really worried because she knew that if he got ill, there was nothing they could do for him. So is scur- scurvy is more like vitamin deficiency related, yes. right? It's like not contagious. Yes. Okay. Yeah, the the devastating thing about scurvy is that it is such a terrible disease that could easily be cured within days of eating the right foods. Oh, yeah. Yikes. Yeah, it's so frustrating. So their food situation was growing worse. They had no way of knowing, you know, not being professionals, that on these Arctic islands, the animals didn't usually stay in the same place year after year. They kind of traveled around to the different islands. Ooh, uh-huh. So their supply of food had pretty much disappeared. Yikes. They were mostly surviving on walrus skin and hard bread. Ugh. Uh, and it became clear that they were not going to be able to wait until the spring to cross the ice. 
So Ada repaired all of their old clothing, made them sleeping bags, mittens, socks, and blankets from animal skins. And the men planned their trip. They figured that they would be able to reach Nome in about 70 days. Oh, seems so long. On the ice. Like, oh. Mm-hmm. So Crawford and Knight decided to go, uh, planning to bring back food and supplies. And while they were in Nome, hopefully get treatment for Knight's hip pain and also send word to Stephenson about what was happening on the island. Mm-hmm. Ada was to remain behind with Gail and Moore. And at 1 a.m. on January 7th, 1923, Crawford and Knight set out across the ice. But they immediately encountered terribly rough conditions. Uh, Their sled was way too heavy because their dogs were so malnourished. And Knight's condition was getting worse. And he was having a really hard time helping with much of anything. So they decided that they would have to turn around and go back to camp. When they walked back into camp on January 20th, Crawford's feet and fingers were frostbitten. Both of their faces were black and blistered from the cold. Knight's heels had cracked open and he could hardly walk from the pain of that and his scurvy that he was still keeping secret. Yikes. Oh, that's awful. They knew that they did not have enough supplies at camp to sustain all five of them through the winter. So they were going to have to attempt the crossing again. They decided that this time three men should go. That way they would be able to make camp each night more quickly and be able to get out of the cold sooner. So night would remain behind with Ada while the other three men went on to get help. They left on January 29th and promised Ada that they would return with a ship in the summer or cross the ice again next fall at the latest. Uh, Once they left, Knight undertook as many chores as he could despite his pain. But a week after the other three men had left, Ada found Knight unconscious outside of their tent. Uh Mm Uh-oh. He finally confessed to her that he was terribly ill with scurvy, And he pretty much just retired to his bunk while Ada took over everything. Oh, no. The only food that they had that could could presumably help cure the scurvy was sour seal blubber. And Knight ate as much of that as he could stomach, but it just didn't seem to do much. Ada started teaching herself how to check the traps and set them. She was able to trap a fox and bring it home, but the fresh meat did little to improve Knight. He began losing his teeth, he couldn't sit up without getting dizzy, and he had a gnawing hunger for fresh raw meat. Oh my gosh. He started growing angry with Ada. He was frustrated that she couldn't hunt. He called her lazy, stupid, and thoughtless. Hmm. Ada herself was beginning to show the first signs of scurvy. Uh Uh-oh. But in March, she perfected her trapping technique, plus she taught herself how to sneak up on foxes, bash them over the head, and snap their necks. My gosh. 
But even with the increase in meat, Knight just was not improving. Uh, At this point, his throat was so raw and his teeth and mouth were so messed up that he could hardly chew to even get any of the fresh meat. And for some reason, he only wanted his meat overcooked, even though he really should have been eating it raw. Yeah. Knight was no longer able to keep up with his own journal, so for the first time, Ada began began recording in hers. Knight's condition was so deteriorated that he was nothing but skin and bones. Ada had to cushion his joints with padding and pillows, and he couldn't even leave his sleeping bag to go to the restroom. So Ada cut a hole in his bag and fashioned a bedpan below it. He continued to be horrible to her. He told her that her husband had been a good man and that Ada had forced him to treat her badly and leave her. Oh, no. He told her that her children had died because she couldn't care for them just like she couldn't care for him now. No. But no matter how horrible he was to her, Ada continued to nurse him. She fed him the best bits of meat, she cleaned him, and she kept everything running single-handedly at the camp. Despite going through serious bouts of illness herself, that left her unable to leave her bed for days at a time. She was terrified of night dying and leaving her all alone. Yeah. So in May, she began to teach herself how to use the rifle. May. They left in January. Yep. Okay. I know. I know. This this poor woman. So she, she teaches herself to use a rifle and begins building a skin boat to hunt walruses and seals. Meanwhile, back at home, Stephenson was attempting again to raise funds and enthusiasm for another relief party. Um, he had announced his retirement from exploring but still felt like, I don't know, maybe he should, like, wrap up this expedition he had started. Jesus. But he had some obstacles. First of all, Britain had not supported this in the first place, so they sure. weren't really interested in giving him money. World War I had, you know, recently finished, and they weren't exactly thriving financially. Sure. And Stephenson kept getting in his own way because he insisted on framing the venture as a relief ship, not a rescue ship, because he didn't want to let go of his stupid idea of the friendly Arctic. Uh. On June 23rd, 1923, Knight died. The day before, he thanked Ada for all she had done for him and told her that she must be strong and do her best to survive until the ship arrived. Uh. Ada couldn't stand the idea of moving Knight from the sleeping bag that had become his tomb, so she built a barricade of boxes around his body and moved herself into the storage tent. Oh my god. Stephenson had finally found a captain for his relief expedition and sent him ahead to Nome to find a ship, promising to send funds. But as Captain Noyce watched August tick on, he knew he was running out of time to reach Wrangell before the ice closed in. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, the Russian government had heard about 
this Wrangell Island colonization and had (laughs) issued a warning that they would send a ship to the island and take everyone on it. Mm. So through June, Ada continued to perfect her hunting skills. She killed her first seal, then another. Um, She bolstered her little home. She added new soles to her boots, mended her gloves, and began making a parka out of reindeer skin and wolf trimming. She still hoped for a ship, but she knew she needed to be ready to face another winter just in case. The money for the relief expedition reached Captain Noyce in Nome on August 1st. He secured a ship and supplies, assembled a crew, including a handful of Inuits, and set off. It was not an easy voyage, and they nearly turned back a number of times. But on August 18th, the ship reached Wrangell Island. Oh my gosh. They searched the shoreline near the old Carlock camp, but couldn't find any signs of life. Ten miles later, Noyce spotted an abandoned camp, and they went ashore and investigated, but could find no sign of anyone. Oh no. They continued down the shoreline, blowing the ship's whistle continuously. On the morning of August 20th, the Inuits who stood on deck let out a loud whoop. They were pointing at a figure standing on the beach. It was Ada standing with her hands outstretched. Oh my goodness. Ada was dressed in furs from head to foot with a snow shirt over her reindeer parka trimmed in wolfskin. Her face was lined and toughened and Noyce noted that she looked like a hunter. Wow. The first thing that Ada did was ask where Crawford, Gale, and Moore were. He replied, I expected to find them all on Wrangell Island. Oh, no. Ada told him, there is nobody here but me. I am all alone. Wow. I want to go back to my mother. Will you take me back to Nome? Oh, my gosh. Noyce told her that he would, and Ada collapsed. Oh. Ada told Noyce, Everything she could about what had happened to her and the others. Um, She was distraught over the news that there had been no sign of the other men, but was hopeful that they were still alive somehow. Uh, She showed Noyce her tent, where he saw a cupboard built out of boxes to store her her ammunition. He saw the boat she had built um, and a stove she had made herself out of kerosene tins and driftwood. Ada offered to make Noyce tea and apologize for not being able to offer him something to eat. Oh my gosh! I know. Uh, They buried Lorne Knight the following day, marking his grave with a simple wooden cross inscribed with his name and date of death. They then collected all of the men's belongings along with Ada's and the relief crew, which was headed by a man named Charles Wells, set up their camp. Because for some reason, another man wanted to stay there. Why? (laughs) How do you arrive in a camp where three of the men are missing, one is dead, and you're like, yeah, I'll stay. All right, this looks fine. Yeah. Oh, I don't understand. Ada took one last look at Wrangell Island and boarded the boat that would take her home. Once in Nome, Noyce sent a telegram to Stephenson that read, Arrival last Wednesday, Blackjack only survivor. 
Buried night, August 20th. Crawford Gale Moore left Wrangell January 28th, 1923. Believe entire party perished. You notify relatives of boys as you think best. Have left colony of two Eskimo families, two unmarried Eskimo men in charge of wells. Equipped party for two years sojourn. Game conditions wrangle apparently excellent. Failure of last expedition due to combination poor equipment and experience. When the ship reached Nome, Ada was, of course, anxious to go find her son and family. But Noyce held her aboard the ship while the men questioned her about her role in the death of night. <sighs> she endured days of questioning about night's death um, she was forced to relive her darkest and most terrifying days before eventually Noyce allowed her sister to come aboard and support her. And finally, Ada was allowed to leave with her family and Victoria, the cat who had survived along with her. Uh, she reunited with her sister, Rita, who told her that the party on Wrangell had been reported dead months ago, and they had thought that they would never see her again. Oh, my gosh. While Ada was away, Jack Blackjack had drowned in a river. Well, okay. Uh, her stepfather had died, and her sister had had a baby. She had named the child Ada after her brave sister, who was lost in the Arctic. Oh, my goodness. I know. Ada didn't hold any resentment or blame anyone for what had happened on Wrangell Island. She said no one had forced her to go, and she knew that it was dangerous. When Stephenson received Noyce's telegram about the fate of the Wrangell party, he reacted with shock. But he also began a swift PR negotiation to keep his association with the expedition minimal and to keep words like starvation, hunger, and frostbite out of the papers, fearing it would ruin the image he had worked to create of the friendly Arctic. What a douche. Yeah. He also began negotiating the purchase of the rights to the men in Ada's stories, along with their personal journals. No. Mm -hmm. Noyce, however, still had the journals, uh, which he had collected from the island, and he had no plans to give them up, not even to the men's families. Instead, he held them tightly, parceling out information to the press as he pleased for his own financial gain. Ugh. He lambasted Stephenson in his articles, blaming him for sending four young, inexperienced men and one girl alone into the Arctic while he hadn't even bothered to check the living conditions of the island himself beforehand. Which is fair. Yes, but also, yeah, Noyce is the worst for refusing to give those to the victims' families. Yeah, absolutely. In Gnome, Ada Blackjack was a hero. She was compared to Joan of Arc and Madame Butterfly. Wow. But she was still suffering. She couldn't seem to get warm. She was constantly hungry. Uh, and she missed all of her companions terribly, even night. The families of the men wrote her letters, eager to hear her accounts of their son's and husband's last days, but she seemed to have basically disappeared. In the fall of 1923, she collected Bennett from the orphanage, packed up their belongings, and moved to Seattle. Oh, she got Bennett! Mm -hmm. 
Her bank account was full with the money from Stephenson having been faithfully deposited each month she was in the Arctic. So is that something? That's one thing. Yeah. (laughs) Stephenson was also growing desperate to find her and keep her from selling her story to Noyce. He was eventually informed that Ada was safe, but that she wanted no contact with him or anyone else related to the Wrangell expedition. Fair. She had had her diaries taken from her by Noyce when he rescued her, so she didn't even have them. She did agree to a brief meeting with Knight's father, where she told him the men were all good friends, worked hard, and tried their very best to survive. She told him that they had all treated her kindly. She accepted an invitation to visit the Knight family at their home outside of Portland, Oregon. She had a small number of personal items of Knight's that she had hidden from Noyce, and she returned these to his family. Um, While she was there, she received a steady stream of visitors from friends of the family or just admirers, and she had soon accumulated a large pile of gifts for herself and her son from the well-wishers. The family had formal photos taken with Ada, and the knights gifted her an engraved gold watch. Wow. They grew so close during her visit that after she returned to Seattle, they wrote to her asking for her and Bennett to come live with them. Oh my goodness. And although she was touched and deeply loved them, Ada refused, feeling that she needed to put Wrangle behind her so that she could begin to live again. Makes sense, yeah. Ada met Stephenson for the first time in January of 1924 when he passed through Seattle. He spent several days interviewing her. Bennett had been released from the hospital but was still ill. Uh, There was just nothing more that the doctors could really do for him. Uh, Stephenson introduced Ada to a friend of his, Peggy Fletcher, who also had a son Bennett's age who had been seriously ill. Mrs. Fletcher invited Ada and Bennett to travel with her to California, and the doctors agreed that the sunshine and fresh air would be good for him, so they went. But Mrs. Fletcher had an ulterior motive. Uh, Stephenson had asked her to convince Ada to sell her diary and papers to him, which she did for the sum of $500. Mm. Mrs. Fletcher also kept fastidious notes of everything Ada told her about her time on Wrangell Island, which she sent to letter by Stephenson each day. My gosh, she's just trying to take care of her son. and I know, it's awful. People are the worst. They really are. The New York World published a headline on January 24th, 1924, that read, quote, Spurned Eskimo woman is blamed for Arctic death. No. So Noyce's original articles about Ada had painted her as a hero, but Noyce's wife grew terribly jealous and was convinced that Ada was a sex worker who had chased four men to the Arctic and tormented them with her sexual advances. What the fuck? Oh, my God. Uh, She was super angry that her husband seemed so impressed by her and threatened him with ruin, eventually convincing him to tell a different story, that Ada had refused to help Knight as he lay dying. 
Um, Noyce wrote that when he reached Wrangell Island, Ada was fat and well, while Knight's emaciated body weighed only 90 pounds. Oh my God. Uh, Knight's father himself went on a crusade to protect Ada's honor, writing articles explaining that he knew Ada well and trusted her story explicitly, and that Noyce's about face was in direct contradiction to his original accounts of finding Ada near starvation herself. Yeah. But Ada was determined to tell her own story for the first time, and she gave an interview to the Los Angeles Times, who ran her account in three lengthy articles over five days. Wow. Newspaper editorials around the world took her side against Noyce, and he basically lost all credibility. He eventually signed a retraction under pressure from Stephenson. Awesome. Ada Blackjack had another son, and she moved her two boys to Spokane. Stephenson's book, The Adventure of Wrangell Island, was published in April of 1925. In it, he published Noyce's retraction. It also included an introduction by Knight's father and Stephenson devoted pages to defending the dead men and Ada. Although the book was not a big moneymaker, as people had been reading about the story for years already. Sure, sure. It was widely regarded as a great tribute to the Wrangell party and did a bit to restore Stephenson's reputation while effectively destroying noises. Moore's family and Crawford's family, however, were greatly upset by Stephenson claiming that their sons had headed across the ice, mostly out of boredom and a desire to get into contact with Stephenson, rather than that they were, you know, starving to death. Right, yeah. <laughs> One of them was dying of scurvy, right. like, and they, they didn't know that, but he was sick. Ugh. You know, couldn't mess up his idea of the friendly Arctic. Sure. But all of the families were thrilled that Ada Blackjack had been restored as the rightful hero of the story. Ada Blackjack returned with her sons to Nome, where in 1927, reports stated that she was ill with tuberculosis and preparing to die. She had placed her sons, Bennett and Billy, in the care of the Jesse Lee home, which was a mission school near Seward, Alaska, while she was in hospital on Kodiak Island. She came to visit her sons when she could, though she always appeared frail and sickly, constantly coughing up blood. Stephenson professed to his friends that he was sick of hearing about her. She was a heroine and had been given money again and again, yet she always managed to end up sick and poor. Oh my god. Sorry for the terrible white man. They're just impossible to get away from. (laughs) You can't. They're everywhere. But despite her terrible prognosis, Ada clung to life. In May of 1928, she wed Ralph Traffers, but they divorced almost immediately, and she remarried a man named George Johnson. They also divorced right away, and she collected her children from the orphanage when Billy was nine years old. She worked herding reindeer, and hunted and trapped to earn a living. Billy grew up healthy and strong and left home while Bennett remained behind to be cared for by his mother. She had few possessions, but her most prized was the Bible that had been given to her by night before he died with an inscription written in it to her. 
Little was heard of Ada Blackjack for the remainder of her life. In 1950, she wrote a letter to Stephenson asking for funds she said he had promised her. Stephenson responded that he had paid her in full, plus extra, through the gifts she and her son had received as a direct result of being on the expedition. He chided her for not using her money responsibly. Meanwhile, she n- she never received any royalties from the book written about her. Right. Yeah. And I would imagine taking care of a son with tuberculosis who requires hospital care is pretty expensive. Yes, absolutely. So that was the last communication that Ada and Stephenson ever had. Stephenson died in 1962 at the age of 82 from a stroke. Bennett Blackjack died in 1972 at the age of 58. The following year, at 74 years old, Ada granted her first interview since 1924. She had promised Billy, who was then the vice president of the Alaska Federation of Natives in Seattle, that she would honor her obligation to history by telling her story. Ada Blackjack died on May 29, 1983, at the age of 85 at Palmer's Pioneers Nursing Home in Palmer, Alaska. She was buried beside her son, Bennett. Billy Blackjack Johnson petitioned the Alaska legislator to honor his mother's memory as a native heroine. One month after her death, the state of Alaska recognized her as a, quote, true and courageous hero. The state issued the following citation. Born in 1898, just east of Nome, Ada was selected to travel with the ill-fated expedition organized in 1921 by Wilhelmer Stephenson to explore remote and uninhabited Wrangell Island. It was two years before the young woman was rescued from the island, the only member of the landing party to live through the ordeal. The fate of some members is unknown to this day. What is known is that for month after lonely and terrifying month, Ada Blackjack Johnson cared for an ill member of the crew, lived off the land, battled polar bears, and somehow managed to survive until a rescue boat arrived nearly two years after she had arrived on the island. Not many Alaskans remember this soft-spoken and vital woman. In the years following her heroic feat, she was forgotten by most people who knew of her ordeal. The middle years of her life were not pleasant, although we are convinced she would have been the last to complain. We urge Alaskans to become familiar with the story of Ada Blackjack Johnson, who recently passed away in Palmer. From her story, we can each gain an insight into the life and personal courage of a resident of our state who survived under unbearable circumstances, only to be forgotten by her friends and neighbors. It is our duty and obligation to honor Ada Blackjack Johnson for her astounding courage, her spiritual strength, and her commitment to her fellow man. That's beautiful. Yes. And that is everything I know about Ada Blackjack and the Wrangell Island Expedition. That was amazing. What an awesome woman. I know. I love her. So cool. Okay. So I have some recommendations. Okay. So for nonfiction, 
The source that I used for most of this was Ada Blackjack, A True Story of Survival in the Arctic by Jennifer Niven. This is a pretty exhaustive look at the entire Wrangell Island ordeal, uh, including background on every single member of the party, um, details about all their families and what happened to them afterwards, uh, a lot more background on Stephenson. She goes into like the politics at the time, and then nearly a day-by-day account of the entire time on the island. Uh, so there is a lot more to this story that... I didn't talk about or only skimmed the surface. So if you're interested in a full account, it's definitely the best one out there. Cool. Um, The next one is a YA nonfiction called Marooned in the Arctic, the true story of Ada Blackjack, the female Robinson Caruso by Peggy Caravantes. Um, So this is a YA nonfiction about Ada Blackjack named a notable social studies trade book for young people in 2017. The first young adult book about Blackjack's remarkable story, Marooned in the Arctic, includes sidebars on relevant topics of interest to teens, including the use of cats on ships, the phenomenon known as Arctic hysteria, and aspects of Inuit culture and beliefs. With excerpts from diaries, letters, and telegrams, historic photos, a map, source notes, and a bibliography, this is an indispensable resource for any young adventure lover. Ooh. The last nonfiction kind of sits on the fence between nonfiction and fiction, but it's called A Line of Driftwood, The Ada Blackjack Story by Diane Glancy. And Diane Glancy is an indigenous author and poet who stumbled across Ada's story in the Dartmouth archives and set out to retell the native woman's story with respect, context, and empathy, focusing on her time at the Indian residential school, her struggles as a mother and a wife and her faith through a mix of poetry and prose. Okay. Fiction. First, How to Survive in the North by Luke Healy. This is a graphic novel, um, and it alternates between three strands, overlapping people and events, facts and fiction, in an intricate narrative pattern of challenge, crisis, and survival for each of the three protagonists. It's two parts historical, one part invention, and a quiet contemplation and celebration of the tenacity of the human spirit. And one of the historic plot lines that he follows is that of Ada Blackjack. Um, How the Penguin Saved Veronica by Hazel Pryor. 85-year-old Veronica is estranged from her family and searching for a cause worthy of inheriting her estate. After seeing a documentary about penguins being studied in, in, in Antarctica, she contacts the scientists and tells them she's coming to visit and she won't take no for an answer. After traveling from Scotland to Antarctica, she convinces the reluctant team to rescue an orphaned baby penguin. Veronica's curmudgeonly heart can't help but be warmed as the penguin becomes a part of everyday life at the base. Veronica's grandson, Patrick, travels to Antarctica to make one last attempt to get to know his grandmother. Together, Veronica, Patrick, and even the scientists learn what family, love, and connection are all about. Um, For Christmas, my parents adopted a koala in my grandma's name because my grandma loves koalas. Um, Uh So ever since then, she keeps telling everyone that she has a koala in Australia 
and she will go to visit him someday. And she's waiting to name him until she meets him in person. Oh, <laughs> that's so cute. I know. All right. My last fiction is The Arctic Fury by Greer McAllister. And this is a historical mystery based on the true story of Lady Jane Franklin's quest to find her husband who went missing during an Arctic expedition in the 1850s. She convinces adventurer Virginia Reeve to lead 12 women on a secret quest through impossible terrain and conditions. A year later, only five of the original 12 women are back home, and Virginia has been charged with murder. Ooh. Ah, uh, and that's that. Wrangell Island, by the way, is now, like, firmly part of Russia. Like, there's no debate. That is Russia's. <laughs> uh, they have turned it into some sort of, like, nature preserve. And I believe there's only a small handful of people who live there. Okay. So, yeah. All right. All right. Well, we'll see. We'll see you next week. We will see you next week. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to the reference desk. Please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple podcasts. If you're interested in any of the books we talked about on this episode, you can find them all, and more like them, at your local library. And if you'd like to purchase a book, please use our affiliate link at bookshop.org slash shop slash the reference desk pod. That's bookshop.org slash shop slash the reference desk pod, all one word. Follow us on Instagram at the reference desk pod. And check out our website at thereferencedeskpod.com, where you can find our show notes, a full list of our sources, and all of our book recommendations. Until next week, we'll see you in the stacks. <laughs>